This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. The things we cook, how we eat them, and the ways in which we eat them are some of the most quotidian details of our cultural lives and our shared cultural history. Yet they have tremendous implications reaching far beyond our plates and our tables. For the history of food is a matter of the mastery and diffusion of new ways of making plants and animals edible. These are the words of my guest today, Rachel Loudon. She is a historian of food and the author of a splendid book, Cuisine and Empire, in which she describes the development and decline of cuisines throughout world history over 20,000 years, and how shifts in culinary philosophy, how humans have thought about what they eat, lead to the creation of new cuisines. And I think they're given that, once again, I, I failed at getting a historian of Christmas for this podcast. There are a few other subjects closer to this, this time of year, to what we're doing, to what we're thinking about, uh, than this one. Uh, Rachel Loudon, th- thanks so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Um, you begin uh, by, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, um, there are fantastic aphorisms uh, that you that there are your own uh, scattered throughout this um, this wonderful book. Uh, one of them is a sheaf of wheat is no more food than a bowl of cotton as a garment. Um, you point out that uh, food is not actually, uh, well, raw foods are not really food. What, what do you mean by that? Defend yourself. 
definitely. No, there are a few foods that we eat raw, obviously, um, oysters, famously. Um, but the proportion of our calories that comes from raw food is uh, minuscule. Um, and studies that have been done on people who try to survive on what they call raw food uh, show that they have a very great deal of difficulty uh, maintaining their health even when they slip in all kinds of transformations to the raw materials like chopping and grinding and heating to 120 degrees. I, I, was, I was shocked to hear that raw foodists go in for that sort of underhanded stuff. I, I don't see that how they can... Well, anyway. Um, so your, your point, and you point out, in, in some ways, I, I think you're suggesting, others have said, that it, cooking makes us human. Yes, uh, we have heard so much about natural food, and we use food so often to talk about what farmers grow, that the fact that almost everything we put in our mouths has been transformed uh, tends to escape us. And those transformations are incredibly laborious and tricky and energy-consuming. But uh, without them, we simply wouldn't have evolved the way we have done. Uh, for, for example, uh, making um, food more digestible by cooking it uh, actually increases the amount of energy that we can extract from a given amount of food. It does, and anthropologists um, are uh, pretty much convinced that um, the fact that we don't have to spend so much energy digesting has allowed uh, that energy to go to our brains and to, and thus the, um, our intelligence is closely linked, has evolved with our ability to prepare food. Now, the first uh, chapter of your book uh, is called Mastering Grain Cookery, and it covers a, a staggering, uh, let me try my math here, 19,700 years um, just in, in a very quick, uh, given the amount of time, it's a rather short chapter, but um, describe uh, for us, if you would, the, um, what do you mean by mastering grain cookery? Uh, why isn't that important? Uh, doesn't wheat make us all sick? And et cetera. Uh, yes, poor wheat has a very bad rap at the moment. Um, what you have in human history is a systematic inventorying of the world's food resources. It's pretty clear, <coughs> excuse me, that by about 20,000 years ago, humans have um, gone all around the globe and they have nibbled on everything they can think of. And what they have discovered is that uh, grains... Um, give you almost the most complete diet that you can have in one neat little package. And it's also um, incredibly handy because grains are um, small and hard and store well so that you can um, keep them for the bad season, whether the bad season happens to be cold or wet or hot or whatever it is. Um, so grains are this tremendous resource. The trouble is that they, because they are hard and because they are tiny, they're incredibly difficult to turn into something that we can easily digest. 
And so one of the great breakthroughs in the history of our food is learning to turn wheat and barley and rice and um, millet and a few other grains that are less well known into uh, bread and beer and uh, various kinds of soupy things. It's interesting to me that uh, it seems that what everyone eats first is some variety of soupy thing. Um, uh, you go through a whole list of various things like this, but some sort of pottage uh, or some sort of, well, yeah, I don't know, soupy thing. Is... Yes, we've, le- we've lost a lot of the vocabulary for this because nowadays we don't talk about gruel or pottage except perhaps if we read about pottage in the Bible, if the Bible's a book we read. Um, but yes, I mean, boiling is one of uh, the easiest ways of softening uh, these hard little grains up and making them uh, edible. And uh, just about, I mean, any level, yes, it's much easier than baking bread. Um, and anyone can do it. You've got fire, you've got water, you've got a pot. You can make some sort of barley gruel. And it's, it's, uh, so the, the Chinese have their uh, sort of a rice gruel. Um, you say that even the Canary Islanders have a, um, a, a sort of very, what they call gofio, this very, even to this day, this very strange, com- well, interesting combination of various grains. And I think yeah. you can seaweed. Uh, yes. So um, what's, what, and the other co- uh, competitor we should say for this uh, caloric intake is our roots. Uh, but roots have their problems. Yes, and I should say when I'm talking about roots, um, I'm talking about things that are underground. So um, I'm not talking about biological distinctions between corns. uh, It's the general gastronomical uh, category of things that um, are uh, starchy underground uh, parts of plants. Um, The trouble with roots are twofold. One, um, roots tend to be poisonous. Plants can't run away and they protect themselves. Grains do it by being small and hard and and tightly enclosed in inedible husks. Roots do it by (coughs) being poisonous. And um, so that's one disadvantage. The other is that roots are... Um, have a much higher percentage of water, so they're heavy. So it's very difficult to get roots um, uh, carried over long distances. And that's why grains are so um, spectacularly important, because if you look at the world, until really we get railroad transportation um, in the 19th century, um, all the cities in the world depend on grains. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, you, um, you, you point out that it takes uh, two pounds of grain, if I get the exact figures, two pounds of grain provides 2,500 to 3,000 calories, and that even with a flint sickle, um, it's possible to harvest wheat at the rate of about four pounds an hour. That's The, that the math is pretty good there. Yes. Yes, it's a... It's a they um, really do provide um, an excellent source if you can turn them into food. Um, 
it is um, the effort with grains is not so much in harvesting them as in basically grinding them is the, the break, big breakthrough. Yes, describe that if you would. There's a, there's a great uh, couple of well autobiographical passages there as you describe that. Oh, yes, my father was a farmer and one day he thought he'd make bread out of uh, the wheat he grew on our farm and he tried everything. He, he put it in a pestle and mortar and whatever you read in books, you cannot turn grain into flour in a pestle and mortar. Um, he uh, put it through a meat grinder, the old-fashioned kind you clamp on a table. He got down on the floor and hammered it, and all he got was smashed grains. It, it was a, a lesson that was very important for me. I thought, my goodness, I mean, we are living here with barns full of sacks of grain, and we could starve. <laughs> I had a very different experience because my father, uh, well, I wouldn't say we're farmers, but we, we have... Uh, farm acreage, and we put a 55-gallon drum beneath a combine harvester, uh, filled it up, and then ground the result in a coffee mill. And uh, we still do that, or I believe he, he still does that. But there are a lot of technological changes. <laughs> There's a big technological difference uh, between what your father did and what my father did. Yes. Um, you then uh, go on to make uh, what's a very important distinction for the rest of your book between high and humble cuisine. Um, which in each particular empire, uh, you say at one point, okay, this is a bit of a caricature, it's a generalization, but my goodness, it's a, this is a book of world history that goes over 20,000 years, or actually more than that. Um, so that's just the first chapter, is 20,000 years. Um, so that generalizations are acceptable, I think. Um, but high and humble cuisine, what do you mean? And could you give us some examples of that in, say, um, in Persia? The distinction here is that once you have these nice storable grains, um, those can form a kind of wealth. And so you get a wealthy class and a much, much, much larger uh, class of poor people. Um, and the wealthy class distinguish themselves from the poor class by eating a, a high cuisine which has a lot of meat, alcohol, um, sweet things, sauces, whereas the bulk of the population, and this is still true in some parts of the world, and it was true um, everywhere until about 150 years ago, the ordinary people, that would almost certainly have included me and you and uh, most of the listeners, nine out of ten people, um, had a diet that was basically heavily carbohydrate, usually of less prestigious grains or whole grains. Um, it, it wasn't totally boring because they could add different vegetables at different times of year, but compared to the rich diet, it was very limited. Now, the question is, I mean, how... how, how, how did this happen? How could people allow a few people to uh, have such a much better uh, diet and lifestyle in general? Um, and that, of course, is a question that historians have struggled with. Um, I don't have a complete answer to it, but one of the things is that uh, the ruling class uh, interpret themselves as being the people who intercede between the gods and uh, the humans. 
and they offer to the gods sacrifices of meat and grains, which um, are designed in a kind of uh, bargain to persuade the gods to ensure plentiful harvests. How much everybody else believed this, it's not clear. But uh, that is the kind of role that the well-to-do who are not engaged in the day-to-day business of farming and preparing um, food uh, take on themselves. What, what was extraordinary to me um, as I read the, even this first chapter was to see things which uh, I can were familiar to me as an 18th century historian is, you know, the part of history where I usually live. Uh, you, and yet they were also common to um, all the various empires, the, there were, uh, the Chinese, the Persian um, empire. They all had the same sort of a- attitude. For, for one example, the uh, Chinese word fang, like the English word uh, recipe or receipt, meant, means both recipe and prescription. Um, you point out, that the cook is in many ways as much as a, a doctor or a physician. They're in close collaboration uh, so that uh, food has always been part of the pharmacopoeia and pharmacopoeia has always been part of food. And hence, in 18th century cookbooks, you still find, um, you find medical recipes. You find things that, well, we'll get to the middling cuisine, but this continues all the way. Um, the idea, uh, julep, um, being from jalap, being from a dose that a doctor gives. Um, we can even put cocktails into this, into this history. It's quite fascinating. These things begin very early and then proceed all along, right, uh, as you say, to about 150 years ago. We need to um, fast forward here a, l- a little bit. Um, you've established this low cuisine, there's this high cuisine, and then it seems to me the, the sort of the thrust of the, of the history that you're telling is the eventual creation of a middling cuisine. Um, what is it, and where does this happen? Uh, this happened, well, a middling cuisine, first of all, is what most of us today eat if we live in one of the richer countries of the world. It is a cuisine that has a huge amount in common with earlier high cuisines. We take it for granted that if we wish we can eat meat, that we can enjoy sweeteners, that we can enjoy sauces, that we can have um, goods brought from afar, coffee, tea, chocolate. All these uh, are completely new developments uh, for the bulk of the population. Um, The one thing um, that we don't have, though some of us take it on ourselves, is we no longer have personal physicians who create our personal diets for us. But in every other respect, a middling cuisine resembles very closely uh, the high cuisines of old, except that it becomes not only Um, available to but a part of the political rights of uh, the entire population so the you are explicitly linking the creation of middling cuisine with a growing sense of political rights and for lack of a better word democratization yes i think you have to see it that way um i don't I mean, now um, the hamburger, obviously, is the great symbol of this because the hamburger is um, red meat, which is 
um, the desired form of fresh red meat, not preserved meat, on white bread. Um, and at least in the Western Hemisphere, um, that used to be the privilege of the extremely wealthy. Mm-hmm. And please go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so, and in fact, you uh, trace that, well, you're tracing that forwards from the English um, desire for bread and meat, or bread and red meat, actually, not just any kind of meat. Yes. Okay, go on, sorry. Um, and so um, we have the extraordinary sight um, nowadays, and this really is jumping right up to the present, of seeing American presidents um, eating hamburgers just like everybody else. And uh, whatever, I mean, hamburger has come in for a, a lot of criticism um, in connection with things like obesity. But on the other hand, we have to remember that it is a symbol of being a full member of society. And that's why it, uh, I think, shot around the world so effectively, um, unlike say, British fish and chips, which never really went outside Britain, but uh, they weren't bread and white meat, uh, red meat. So what is the, I guess I still don't, what's the attraction of, of bread and, well, actually white bread and, and red meat? Um, why should that be such a, a touchstone? Uh, bread in all the wheat-growing societies um, is the most desirable form of grain cookery apart from um, beer or some kind of alcohol. If you're talking about um, solid foods, then bread is, a, you know, it's the staple, it's the staff of life, it's uh, what most people would have got 90% of their calories from until very, very recently. And bread comes in many forms. We think of a spongy white loaf now, and if we are um, health conscious, we say, ah, but whole wheat is so much better. Uh, But that's because we have such ready access to white bread. For most people, for most of history, white bread was the symbol of the aristocracy and the royalty, and everybody else ate a very coarse bread. So having white bread was really the symbol of having arrived. Um, And uh, red meat, well, meat um, is always uh, a symbol of um, uh, uh, virility, of power. Um, Most people didn't have access to fresh meat most of the year. Um, It had to be preserved, it had to be salted or dried. Um, If they got meat, um, it was tough. Um, And it's only in the 20th century that we get the ability to deliver fresh red meat, which is, you know, steaks and roasts, to entire populations. As um, I'm a historian of colonial America, and in many ways I, I see that the story you just told is one of sort of uh, English dreams and American fulfillment. Um, when everyone comes over to Virginia, it's extraordinary. Uh, friends of mine who dig through uh, Virginia trash pits um, 
find a really quickly by 1700 that the predominant uh, sort of bone that's being thrown out is a beef bone. Um, very, very, very little fish, embarrassingly little fish is being eaten. Um, everyone is eating um, sometimes mutton if they have to, uh, but lots and lots of beef. They've achieved the, the great dream of, of eating beef on a regular basis. Exactly. No, I mean, in America, uh, much of its allure through uh, to the migrants who came here was that it was the land of plentiful food, particularly plentiful meat. Yes. And so that uh, famously, and, and, and this is actually happens to be true, the servants in New England insisted that they not be fed salmon. Um, that was just too much. It was trash fish. It was just too much of it. And they wanted to be fed beef. Um, red meat, much better to be, be given that. Um, one of the delights of this book is the number of, um, how shall we say, well, on the, on the beef subject, the sacred cows that uh, come in for uh, at, le at, at least a gentle prodding. Um, uh, I'm not certain that I don't have a, a T-shirt somewhere that says, eat local. Um, you would respectfully uh, disagree with that. Yes, I think there are many reasons to disagree with it. So just let me look at the historical ones. Um, historically speaking, the whole thrust of human food history has been to overcome what you might call the tyranny of the local. Um, most local spots on the earth have very little bounty. I realized this when um, I spent 10 years in Hawaii and uh, literally, apart from fish and seaweed, there is nothing edible in the Hawaiian islands. Every single edible thing has been imported, um, uh, first by the native Hawaiians and then by other migrants since then. So that the human diet has been enormously enhanced by the fact that we have m moved wheat and grapes and cattle and oranges and tea and coffee from one end of the globe to another and uh, established it in new places where it often grows extremely well and uh, we've all been the beneficiaries of this. Um, now, of course, there are other arguments about, you know, um, of food miles and things like that. And um, economists have knocked down arguments that so little of the value of our food um, comes from the transport costs that really um, you don't need to worry about the food miles. Now, of course, in Texas, you know, I will go to my local farmer's market to buy peaches because we have the greatest peaches you could imagine in Texas. And that's a good reason to go there. But there's no reason to go to the farmer's market here to buy many of the other goods that just as well imported from a distance. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, you challenge um, the use of the term processed food as a slur and this gets us back to what processing and, and cooking mean, I think. 
Yes, I mean, all, uh, I mean, food is processed. That's what human food is. We can't eat unprocessed food. And when I say that, then people say, okay, well, it's all right to make bread or to make beer or things like that, but it's gone too far. Um, But it's not clear to me that it's gone too far because from very early on, we have been transforming raw materials, take the soybean, um, you know, into things that bear no resemblance whatsoever to the soybean. um, Like tofu. Tofu and soy sauce. They don't even bear any resemblance to each other. Um, And so um, you've got to judge... Uh, I mean, what's happened is that the processed has become a synonym for bad, and that's a terrible mistake. We do need to be able to distinguish good and bad food, but it doesn't map on to processed versus non-processed. And so uh, we just need to take food on their, uh, different foods on their merits and decide whether they fit our needs or not. But whether or not they're processed is not the issue. They are processed. They're all processed. <laughs> you um, you also uh, say that the challenge is to acknowledge that not all is right with modern cuisines without romanticizing earlier ones. Mm-hmm. And um, I was struck by, as as you moved into the era of the middling cuisine, uh, who should who should emerge? It makes perfect sense that, that it's Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Emile who has the first really romantic view of how we should eat um, as a massive cultural figure and, uh, and you know, uh, romanticist. Uh, naturally, he would turn his attention to food and diet. Uh, and yet, when he says we should eat simply boiled vegetables, fresh fruit, and milk, which, as you point out, was a very rather novel and dangerous idea in 1762, uh, we, we, in many ways we continue to retread Rousseau's uh, steps. Absolutely. We are in the middle um, of a, um, a big romantic uh, move about food at the moment. Um, you can see it in, if you take Michael Pollan's book, for example, that's been so um, successful, um, The Omnivore's Dilemma. He ends up with the perfect meal. Mm-hmm. And the perfect meal for Pollan is a meal that has been foraged out in the woods. Um, It comes straight out of Rousseau. There's a direct kind of lineage you can trace here. Um, And um, it's, you can understand why, um, because people, the idea of food being produced in factories, you're worried about Um, pollution and adulteration and all these things. But uh, unfortunately, um, the idea that there was a simpler time when people could forage food that was safe and natural and healthy and delicious is just a fairy tale. What um, you... uh, Where does... um, where, Where do you think all this is going? I'm just curious. This is you. You have you're using um, your historical uh, methods of historical thinking and appreciation to say an awful lot that um, is jarring to uh, my own and others' uh, sort of modern romantic sensibilities. Um, where, uh, but yet these, this romantic moment seems to be very far from coming to an end. Um, I hate to ask histor- other historians what the future will bring, 
Um, (laughs) But it does seem that we, that this cultural sea is very far from uh, uh, coming to a a high tide mark. I think you're right about that. Um, What we're learning to do very effectively is to make um, kind of uh, faux natural, faux fresh food um, so that I can go into my local supermarket and buy a lettuce um, that is still got its little roots and, you know, some water down there. So it seems like most fresh and natural lettuce. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, you know, it is to have that. We have, well, a, um, you know, got California agriculture, but between California and my table, what you have is a huge packaging industry that has come up with materials that can contain this. You have a huge chemical industry that's come up with gases that can preserve greens for a long time. You've got enormous infrastructure of uh, cold um, containers, cold storage, cold warehouses, that means from the minute the lettuce is picked to the minute it gets to my table, it's never out of a chilled atmosphere for more than a few seconds. This is an infrastructure that is just huge and highly technological. And then, you know, you sit down at the table and you say, well, I just love, you know, having fresh lettuce in December. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's wonderful. But um, I think that's the way the question is being resolved for people. I was, uh, I was also very struck um, as I was you were reading the, the chapters. Well, even in the first chapter, uh, we were just, you were discuss, you discussed the the division between Roman Republican, you know, good honest barley gruel, damn it, and <laughs> um, and, and and these disgusting gilded luxuries that come out from those effeminate Greeks who got it from those ridiculous Eastern Persians. Um, Cato the Elder, just have some cabbage so that you can get rid of a hangover. That's all you need. And then a barley gruel and you'll be good to go and conquer something. Um, Defend Republican virtue. And I realized, oh, that sounds like me thinking about um, the modern, uh, highly technical versions of cooking. Uh, You see, not surprisingly, someone like Nathan Mervold, one of the original Microsoft multimillionaires or, or billionaires, uh, writing a book on the um, on sous vide cooking and all these technical marvels, we got someone like Wiley Dufresne, uh, chef in New York City, who uh, tries to make a whole cuisine into looking like um, making versions of, say, deep fried cubes of mayonnaise and things of this nature. Mm-hmm. Um, we we've really in, in this case, we, history might not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. We have. Uh, wealthy people finding new ways of artifice and uh, trying to separate themselves through technical means from what the middling do. Oh, definitely. Yes. I mean, the the human search for status uh, (laughs) goes on and on. And um, we have two slightly divergent ways of uh, having status at the moment, Mm -hmm. food-wise. One is to have the most uh, foraged the most, you know, untouched by human hand food, and the other is the traditional aristocratic, highly um, elaborated, highly processed food. And it's not quite clear how those play out together, but they're both there. Yeah, they're both they're both here. This is a moment for both of them, and they're both. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they see they should see each other in competition, and 
It makes me tired and I want a steak, maybe in a glass of wine. That's all. Um, <laughs> what's, um, how did you come to this project? You, you say it several times. I mean, this seems to have hatched itself in your mind when you were living in Hawaii. Um, and you make a distinction between your, your formal intellectual life as a historian of, of science and technology uh, and your new incarnation as a food historian. I'm not, as I said to you in, before we began, I'm not, I, I think sometimes, I'm not sure I see that distinction. Um, I think you're still a historian of technology in a way. Um, cooking is certainly a technology. I uh, could, oh, go ahead. Cooking is certainly a technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did you come to this, this t- the, the, the decision to launch into food history? Uh, well, it was Hawaii. I mean, I, I agree. With, let me say, first of all, I agree with you. I could not have written this book without a grounding in, say, history of technology, which allows me to say to something like Alfred Crosby, who talks about the Columbian Exchange, um, as if plants can be transferred and you know, that's the end of the story. And I want to say, oh, no, it's not the end of the story because unless you've got ways of turning them into food, unless you've got the technology, the transfer goes nowhere. Yeah, that's a very, I, very good point, yeah. And I couldn't have done it without the history of science, which feeds into the whole nutritional theory that runs throughout the book. Um, but um, Hawaii is a quite extraordinary place. Um, it, it runs counter to all the contemporary romantic food legends about natural bounty in the world. As I mentioned earlier, there's nothing there. When the first settlers came, there was nothing there to eat. Well, there was. There were flightless birds, but they went extinct within a generation or so, um, or they didn't go extinct. They were, they were made extinct. Um, so if the Hawaiians had not brought stuff with them, they couldn't have I've done anything. So then I realized that in order to explain the food of Hawaii, far from being able to talk about it as something that had grown from a peasant base, you had to think of the great diasporas that had come to Hawaii from the South Pacific, from um, the Anglo world, from um, the Asian world, each of them bringing very distinct ways of thinking about food and uh, preparing food. And so I got diverted as a hobby in Hawaii. Um, I had thought it would be boring to be there once you'd sort of got over the sun, sand and surf a week or two. Um, so I, my hobby became writing up the story of Hawaii's cuisines. And then I said to myself, but you know, this is the story everywhere. Nowhere has natural bounties. People have been on the move the whole time, and they've been moving their food with them. And that doesn't mean just plants and animals. It does mean they've been moving their techniques and their ideas around. And in Hawaii, um, everybody um, uh, in history had to think about world history because the student body was overwhelmingly Asian and Buddhist, uh, fourth generation, but still um, Buddhist. And so doing regular Western Civ just didn't make sense. So I got very intrigued in and friendly with people working in food, in world history, um, and talked about how you divided up world history and what ways of thinking about world history were there. Um, this is a long autobiographical story. Um, uh, 
then um, my husband and I decided that we'd had a wonderful 25 years in academia. We'd achieved the things we wanted to sort of develop a second career. And I thought, wow, I would love to try to figure out um, how human food has developed. Um, and my goodness, this is stupidly, ridiculously ambitious. But if you're going to go off and leave academia and work freelance, well, you might as well choose a big project. So I did. So you on your outstanding uh, website, you have a section uh, devoted to becoming a food historian. And uh, before we began, you said um, that people have been coming up to you and saying, gosh, I'd like to do this. Uh, do I have to go get a master's in history? Uh, which made me almost break out into a sweat. Um, uh, and I, I suspect that you're also of the opinion that sometimes the worst thing you can do if you love history is to go get a degree. Um, how... Uh, this is the time uh, when people are eating um, the things that they always eat at this time of year, and and more importantly, they're talking about it. They're talking about who first made it, um, their grandmother, their great-grandmother, maybe they've always eaten it, and they begin to be interested in food as it relates to their family culture and the broader culture. Um, if someone wanted to start writing about what they're eating, how would you recommend that they go about it? Well, first of all, I'd encourage them to have the courage of the convictions and to go right ahead. Um, if they know something about food, that is an enormously good starting point. Um, because, you know, if you're going to write the history of something, you need to know something about it. Um, and so go ahead. Um, at the same time, you know, historians have um, worked out um, some useful uh, uh, distinctions and methods, um, which are not, you know, if you want to go on and you know, write a huge book, then maybe you need to do a master's. But if you just want to get started, there are just a few tips that you can pick up about how you think about um, your research, how you take notes, um, what kinds of food history you might want to write. Do you want to write a history of, you know, your family recipes? Do you want to write a history of sugar? Do you want to talk about meals? Do you want to talk about, um, you know, your nutritional status? Um, there are a number of things that, are, that really you can pick up very quickly um, from professional historians and so um, I just jotted down a few of these, um, uh, and people seem to find it helpful. So um, there you are. Well, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, Rachel Loudon, uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. It's been my pleasure, Alan. Thanks for the great questions. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps the WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.